Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today we have a very special guest and the man behind one of my very favorite shows in recent memory, a TV writer, director, producer, showrunner, and co-creator of Halt and Catch Fire, which along with the American Succession and Better Call Saul is easily one of the best series of the 2010s. Christopher Cantwell is here to tell us all about the cult favorite AMC show that you can watch in its entirety right now on Netflix. And FYI, you should totally do that and then come right back to listen to the podcast. In addition to his TV work, which also includes co-executive producing Lodge 49, Chris has been very active as of late in the world of comic books, where he is currently writing Marvel's monthly Iron Man series, as well as his own original titles in collaboration with some truly fantastic artists and imprints, including Vault Comics, The Blue Flame, regarding the matter of Oswald's body from Boom Studios, and She Could Fly, Volume 3 from Burger Books and Dark Horse. You can find the latest issues of these titles on comic book store shelves throughout the month. Chris, I want to thank you so much for being here. I greatly enjoyed chatting with your wife, Elizabeth, twice this year for the pod and totally want to have her back on again. And I'm so thrilled you kindly agreed to come talk all about Halt. So how are you doing and how's Paul treating you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know it's really, it's really nice to be here. And, and as I said, my, Elizabeth says hi. Uh, she's actually in the other room. She's grading some uh, some high school papers. Speaking of fall, yes, grading some high school papers in the other room right now. Uh, okay, how are they uh, going? going? Are they good? Or uh, <laughs> it depends on the day. It depends yeah. on the day that you ask her. Some days she's like, "Oh my god," you know, and then some days, you know, she, you know, Elizabeth, she's been on, so it's like, you know, she she has some pretty amazing stories, and and yeah. you know, when she kids and uh, it. it she, she, I, I, I feel like she does the meaningful work in our, in our, in our relationship. Oh, absolutely. She's she does some incredible stuff. <laughs> I love teachers. Um, yes. She, she's teaching. Um, she teaches a horror class um, in the humanities and she teaching, uh, she's teaching psycho right now. And she touched on jaws a little bit already. Um, so she, she works, she works her way through some movies as well. So, so yeah. yeah, good. But um, very cool. We're in California, so we had our like hundred degree October, which was super cool, and um, now it's like in the seventies. So I, you know, I'm wearing I get to wear some flannel today, which is nice. And, yep. Uh, the boy, the boys are doing fall ball for little league, so. Oh, cool. We're doing the whole thing, you know. It's the as, as fall as it can be in California. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it's one of those things where we do have seasons out here in the West. I'm in Phoenix. We just get them all in one day is how it works yeah <laughs> one day you get like yeah. the whole day you're like this was awesome what a nice day that was yeah 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 you wake up you're freezing afternoon it's like t-shirt weather you come back it's winter now you know yeah. everybody wins yes yeah. well so work is going well for you though sounds like it so busy yeah, yeah, things are good i i um you know i I was, I, I'm an executive producer on the first season of, of Paper Girls for Amazon, uh, something I did with my partner, 
uh, Chris Rogers from Halt, um, uh, and and the writer who originally sold the pitch, uh, Stephanie Folsom, who co-wrote Toy Story, uh, Toy Story Four. Cool. And, um, we the three of us ran that show until it, it it ran like headlong into the pandemic last year. Mm. Um, so we were we were in kind of a rewrite phase and doing a season two room over the Zoom and everything like that. And then ultimately, I stepped away from the show um, just to focus on some of my own stuff. And uh, and Chris is now Chris is now carrying it to the finish line. So he's in post on the first season. So and I oh I'm, so I'm, cool yeah it's been very cool and um but ultimately I just wanted to focus on some other things. So I I I'm in development land on this and that you know okay my own solo things for TV and film and then I'm just writing a ton of comic books which has been really fun. I've been doing that for a few years now and and it's been great. Yeah, that's so wonderful. So much storytelling. I, I don't know how you keep it all straight, but it's very impressive. Yes. Yeah, it can get it get with. I, at one point, I think I was writing six comic books um, at the same time, and that's fallen to about four. But six was a little too much, where I was needing to kind yeah. of jam an issue script a week, and that that was really that was really getting to me. I was I I was it was hard to keep it. Tra- I keep track. I, I was bet. like. What's I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the creative process, this does bring us to Halt and Catch Fire, which I love for so many reasons, but especially because it focuses on what it is like to put in the work, to be creative, ambitious, to have tunnel vision, to compete. It's a truly amazing achievement. I know you created the show with Chris Rogers. I think you guys were working in Disney social media at the time. And I know you have a background growing up in the Silicon Prairie of Texas as the son of someone who worked in computer software, but I would love to know more. So how did you develop Halt and Catch Fire? Yeah, let's see. I mean, gosh, I mean, what's crazy is, is that I think um, as of October 23rd or 4th, uh, that was, that was 10 years ago. Um, that I day saw that. Yeah. yeah, that we went into AMC for the very first time. So, um, you know, Chris and I, yeah. So we were working at this weirdo startup that got acquired by Disney and, and I had come on board this startup, um, you know, doing short films and things online. Mm-hmm. This would have been around 2006 or so. And, you know, it was like video based stuff because YouTube was kind of the first big thing That's and then right. that expanded to Facebook and Disney acquired the startup and, and they wanted to take control of all of the, I don't even know if they still have them because I haven't been on Facebook in I think eight years. At this yeah, point. I just quit. <laughs> yeah, oh, good. Good for you. Um, but they, they took control of all their like fan pages. I don't even know if they oh, saw gotcha. So they, they, they wanted to unify all their fan pages and like program them with different content. I mean, this is like 2008, 2009. Okay. At this point, I was only there for three years, but um, we needed someone with editorial experience to kind of program the big slate of pages, right? Like all these different yeah. things. So we brought Chris in because he had just come out of Condé Nast, which had closed their West Coast offices. Oh, so yeah, so they had they had closed, uh, you know, all of their West Coast offices, and he had been at Architectural Digest at the time, and um, he he came in and started overseeing the Facebook pages, mm-hmm. and um, 
he and I worked together for maybe a year. At that point, I was like a creative director. So I was doing weird stuff like like viral videos for Pixar and stuff like that. That like we couldn't claim credit for, you know what I mean? Like they were yeah. hidden. Mm-hmm. Like I did like an old toy commercial for um, Lotso, the bad guy from Toy Story 3. I did like the 1983 toy commercial for Lotso Hug and Bear. Like it would, and Lee Unkridge, the director, had mm-hmm. that idea. And so I went off and, and wrote it and scripted it and we shot it and then like hit it online. And then people found it and were like, is this a real toy? And it, it kind uh-huh. of blew up. And then, and then people figured out that it was, it was for the movie. So um, I was doing that stuff and Chris was over doing Facebook. And so every once in a while, I mean, it's funny to think about how we would occasionally, the two of us have to go over and like make a presentation to, you know, the animation studio or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the home entertainment division or like any of those weird buildings over in Burbank. And, and, uh, yeah. and so like we did that for a year and he was like a very dependable guy at like a very strange company that we were at. <laughs> and, uh, um, we were on the outskirts, like in like deep Burbank by the railroad tracks. And we had our own little studio space and like he, I think he wrote me at some point, I had almost gone to work for Pixar and it had not worked out. And I had, I was very sad. It had not, you know, it had not like materialized. I mm-hmm. even like, you know, I mean, I, I, I'd gotten to go to like the 2009 Venice film festival with all of the Pixar directors and like, Oh man. When they were all given the golden lion and I was there to cover it for social media, which was funny, sure. but I was like riding around in those little wooden boats with like, you know, Andrew Stanton and and Lee and, uh, you know, Pete Doctor and, and their families and Bradbird. And it was really cool. George Lucas was there. He handed them the award. He was the presenter. But I really felt like I was like next to the guys who were doing stuff, you know? Yeah. Outside I was like, in. I was like, look at those guys doing that cool stuff. They're right there. And I'm here, you know? Uh, yes. And I, I, I kind of tried to wiggle my way over to Pixar because I had been up there a bunch and I really mm-hmm. loved the place and it just didn't come together and I was I even like sat down with Ed Catmull and was like you know talked to him about what I wanted to do I just didn't pan out and I was pretty bummed that summer and uh, then Rogers he just I think he came into my office or emailed me or something and he was like hey you know what like were you did you are you a writer and I was like well I went to the USC film program um, I was a screenwriting major. Oh, you were? Yeah, I was. I, I had graduated in 04 from the, cool. the BFA program. And so I was like, yeah. And I'd been writing kind of consistently up until that point. Um, you know, I was in, I was engaged. Elizabeth and I were engaged at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to get married in like the spring of 2011. He was like, well, I am too. He's like, I actually, when I first moved out here, I did the UCLA program. I did the master's. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, yeah, at some point we should get a beer, you know, because yeah. we've been working together for a year or whatever. And so we did. And I still remember I was living in downtown L.A. And Elizabeth and I were living at like 7th and Spring in this in the old Bank of America building. And, and I was like, hey, I'm going to pop down and go get a, a beer with uh, this guy I work with named Chris Rogers. Um, he's a really good guy. Like, we're just going to walk up to this bar, it's bar 107, you know, a couple blocks mm-hmm. up and I'll be back. And it's so funny, right? Because like that changed my entire life. It changed the entire direction of my life. And his wow. too, right? It was, yeah. we met up at this bar, which is now gone, which is sad. 
And uh, we, we hung out there for a couple hours, talked about writing. He was like, you still writing? And I was like, yeah, I was like, kind of, I was like, I'm writing this thing right now. It's like a feature. I had never really written TV. That was the funny thing. I had written one episode of, one episode of TV in college. I had taken a TV course cause I had to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was with Georgia Jeffries who worked on, um, oh gosh, what's the show? Cagney and Lacey. Oh, wow. And, yeah, she had worked on Cagney and Lacey, and then she had also ran China Beach with Dana Delaney. And she I was love really that great. show. Yes. Yeah. And so she was really a wonderful teacher. Um, but at that point, this would have been the early 2000s, it was like you, we were writing spec episodes. So I wrote yeah. a spec episode for Monk, the show with Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, know it well. And like, yeah. that, was my, that was my TV for, I was like, I don't care. You know, I was like, okay, I'll try this. Um, but I had always, I mean, since I was 16, I was like, I want to write and direct movies. That was like the thing I wanted to do. Sure. So I was talking to Chris and I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm working on this feature right now. And, and he said, well, you know, the best movies of the last few years have been TV shows. And, and I was like, what do you mean? And he kind of walked me through the dawn of some of these golden age shows that he was really kind of involved in, right? It was very much Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And he's like, you have mm-hmm. to read the Breaking Bad pilot. Like, and I had seen it, which is funny because I'd actually, I'd actually watched the premiere of that show and watched the first six episodes when they come out. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't a TV person. I just like, I missed the West Wing. It was in high school. You know what I mean? I was like out yeah. driving my car around and doing stupid stuff in high school. I just missed. I watched a ton of Roseanne when I was a kid. I watched a lot of TV with my parents, but like, once it got to the mid to late nineties, like after kind of the first couple of years of friends, I just, disp- I was like, whatever. I just went, I just was driving around Texas, you know, where I go. Yeah. Um, but then I started going back and watching these shows. And then I started watching Mad Men and Chris sent me the, the pilot for Breaking Bad and I read it and I thought it was incredible. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing piece of television, but to read it on the page what Vince did with that script is really, really inspiring and, and incredible. Um, just to, I mean, just from every aspect, mechanically, the characters, the economy of it. And I love yeah. the fact that you could like do something awesome and then just stop and be like, and we'll tell you what happens later. You know? And I was like, yeah, yeah that's cool. You don't have to do the whole story in like 90 pages, a hundred pages. Yeah. That's neat. So um, I read that. And then I sent Chris this piece of writing that I've been working on, which was a script called a script called very prepared men, which is a, I thought was a very, good time. yeah, there you go. Uh, very prepared men. And it was about like a secret society of people who were kind of behind the scenes. Um, and they were running everything from like underground boxing matches that like wealthy people could go watch to like nation building in South America, like, it was just kind of a weird thing. Yeah. And he got it. And he was like, and the way he tells it, he's like, you know, we all read a lot of people's scripts. Like, especially if mm-hmm. you're up and coming, you're like, oh, what's this going to be? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like my <laughs> least favorite thing, to be honest. Like, someone's like, will you read this thing? Even people I love and I know they're great writers. I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. I'm always like trepidatious about it. But he yeah. read it and he thought it was, he thought it was really good, which is a high compliment from him. Very cool. And he said, you should turn this into a TV show. And I said, well, <laughs> it's a movie, clearly. <laughs> he, he was like, no, I think there's a way to do it as a, as a show. And 
um, I had gotten notes from another friend who had kind of told me to like do a page one on it. And I was like, oh. and he, Chris was like, no, don't do that. He was like, there's a way to, to make this into like a one hour pilot. And so he, he gave me a lot of notes and he and I kind of worked on it for fun. Mm-hmm. He contributed enough to it that we ended up sharing the byline. Yeah. And we were like, well, what do, you, what do we want to do now? You know? And this was like the fall of 2010. And, and he said, well, I have a friend, a colleague I worked with at Condé Nast. And he was the West Coast editor of GQ. But then the magazine shut down yeah. in LA. So he went and became a manager at Management 360. And he's like kind of a newly minted manager. And I think he's mostly handling actors, but maybe we could get him to read it. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote this pilot. And I remember we went to Cole's, which is a... a French dip restaurant, um, downtown. And it was, I could walk there. It was a block away from where Elizabeth and I left. And it's really old and very famous. They claim to have invented the French dip sandwich. That's okay. Let other podcasts deal with that because there's yeah. another place Philippe that also claims that they invented the French dip, but they, anyway, we yeah. were a cult. <laughs> and we have made a true a list. crime series on who invented that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. French dip hour is a good podcast yes. for somebody else. It's probably already out there. <laughs> But you're welcome, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm gonna option it with Chris. Yeah. Um, no, we just we I had this little notebook, one of those little field notes notebooks, you know, and I was writing, I wrote down every single person I thought we could send it to to mm-hmm. like people I had met over the last, you know, six years being out of college, him, same thing. Chris is a few years younger than me, um, which I don't like to talk about, but <laughs> uh, but no, and so we sent it to to all these people. And, you know, some people were, some people didn't read it. Some people didn't. We're like, cool. Some people had like really stupid feedback, you know? And then Chris Uvain read it, who is our manager. He, he's our manager still. So that's where oh, this that's cool. And he was like, this is really interesting. And this is really good. It's very sharp. Why don't you guys come in and sit down with us and, and just talk and so we did. We went and had a meeting with Chris Huvain, like late 2010. And he brought in a new manager who, whose name was uh, Jennifer Graham. And um, she was brand new. And um, but like just very she was a very wildly intelligent person. And the two of them were like, we, sh- we should try to do something like, let's see, like, we'll represent you guys. And, and you know, why don't you write another pilot? And that way you have two. And then we can try to staff you on a television sure. show. And yeah. I was like, okay. And when we were at Kohl's, Chris and I were like, what's the end game here? Like, if we're going to be a partnership, what do we mm-hmm. want? And we said, well, maybe ultimately in five to 10 years after some experience, we can have our own show on camera. Yeah. Right. That was like the end goal. Yeah. Get staffed first and then yeah. get your own. Oh, do yeah. like some stuff and then maybe we'll get our own show going. Yep. That was the dream. Mm-hmm. And and I had had, I, I'd been like, do you know what hip pocketed is? It's a dumb term. I'd been hip pocketed by an agent at ICM by this point mm-hmm. for a short film I had done, Yeah, which means like, Hey, I'll represent you, but like, I'm not going to do anything. You just tell people I represent you, yep. you all the representing, but like when you say ICM, maybe they'll take you a little serious, more seriously. Right. Okay. So Chris Uvain and Jen said, why don't you go write another pilot? And so we did. And we were like, what should the second one be? We were like, I don't know. Like, and we were still working at Disney, right? And uh, I was like, well, 
you know, what if we did a show about computers? Like what yeah. if we, what if we did like a one hour drama set in the computer world? I just don't think like that's been done successfully yet. You know, there no. have been like pirates of Silicon Valley, which I had seen in high school and like yeah. a couple other things. And we are like, yeah, you know, like an office drama, like family drama thing where we can build some characters in that world. And I said, you know, my dad worked in that world, but let's do it like a left field version. Let's not do Silicon Valley and like, like Microsoft and Apple and all that stuff. Yeah. Not like, Steve let's Jobs. Go like the yeah. weird IBM route, mm-hmm. right. Where it's like, you know, um, we'll start, we'll do it in Texas. Cause like, it turns out there's a bunch of crazy stuff that was going on in Texas. And so we started there and then we started doing research and we learned about compact. We learned about, you know, the idea of why, you know, it, they didn't, they don't call them PCs or they don't call them IBMs. They call them PCs now is because people reverse engineered the IBM PC originally. Yeah, right. It's so fascinating. And, yeah. And they, they found loopholes legally and they, mm-hmm. they created their own computers um, for cheaper um, and for, you know, that were faster and, and some people think better. So we are like, well, that's a fascinating story. We, we watched this documentary called triumph of the nerds, um, which is based on a book by Robert Cringely. He's also the host of the documentary. And we just started building the characters out. And I was literally like writing this, I mean, like no offense to Disney, but like, I was like writing this in my office, you know what I mean? Like, and Chris was down the hall. Everybody does it. Yep. Yeah. Chris, Chris was at his desk down the hall. And I was, I was in my office and like when we weren't, when I wasn't, you know, putting together a PowerPoint presentation for Paranorman or like, you know, yeah. Mars needs moms, <laughs> some other thing. <laughs> like I was, I was writing this. And so we nobody missed that. Yeah, Mars nobody missed, no. I mean, you know, <laughs> I know the criterion of Paranorman is coming out. <laughs> so exactly, Paranorman right? is actually pretty good, isn't it? It I is. Think it's Mars yeah. needs moms. That is the one I want to make fun of the most. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, a masterpiece in its own right. But yeah. uh, regardless, yeah, so we put the script together. We gave it to Jen. We worked with Jen closely. And she gave it to Chris uh, Huvane, our manager. Mm-hmm. She said, these guys did something kind of pretty cool. And at this point, it was like the spring of 2011. And Chris Huvane, um, who I love to death, and I've, I've, he's been my he's been my rep for 10 years at this point, my longest rep. Yeah. And he's from, he's from the Bronx. He's like, the, he's like, has like five brothers. I think that's too many, but it's like a lot. <laughs> Very like working class background, like kind of a bruiser dude. Yeah. Also just a wonderful guy. And, and he called up my agent at the time at ICM. <laughs> and he was like, do you want to actually represent these guys or not? Because if you don't, we think they're good enough. We'll take them somewhere else. Very cool. And they were like, whoa, wait, what? what? And like actually returned our emails and stuff. And so ICM read it and, and the agent there at the time put us in touch with the TV agent. And he said, well, let me see, like, before we just expose this to staffing, right. Meaning like give mm-hmm. it to all the showrunners who are trying to put people on shows. Let me just give it to like three people. And so he gave it to HBO, Showtime and AMC just to see. Even though we had never yeah. done anything, we weren't, you know. And so he he uh, he did, and and we were like hanging out. We were like, oh gosh. And at this point, um, my boss at Disney, who I'm still very close friends with, but at this point, he came to me and he's like, look, I know you're like focused on some of your writing now, and mm-hmm. you've been doing some other stuff, but like, I, I kind of want to move up the organization with you. 
I want to give you control of all this, but if you do that, you know, I kind of need you focused on just this. Right. Yeah. And I went home and had a long conversation with Elizabeth and I was like, gosh, is this like, and it felt like the thing that you, a responsible adult goes, okay. You know? Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> and, and Elizabeth, to her credit, she was like, I, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious that you should not do that. And I was like, perfect. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, well, it was kind of an ultimatum situation. And she was like, I don't know, man, it feels like now or never in terms of what you want to do. Yeah. And this was like right before we got married. So in April, I went in and said, hey, I thought about it. And I think my boss was ready for me to be like, and I'm in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, and I'm going to leave. And I like literally <laughs> said, I'm not going to stay anymore. And I had helped them build this company. I was like employee number two or three at this start. Wow. And uh, I left on, I think, April 30th. And then the next weekend, Elizabeth and I got married and I didn't, and it was, wow. I mean, I, I'd gotten permission from her parents and all that yeah. hockey. And, and um, then all of a sudden I, you know, I was at that point, I was like a Disney executive guy. And then I was like a guy with no job. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm your new son-in-law. I don't have a job. Yeah. I've got this screenplay. Um, <laughs> and she was taking her, she was taking a year off to write her dissertation because she was on a fellowship at USC. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, both of us were at home and like had no job. I mean, she had like a stipend and it was like, yeah. I saved up money. Chris stayed at Disney uh, because, um, well, he, did, he didn't, he wasn't put under an ultimatum. No. And he was kind of like, let's see what happens. Right. And he wasn't married yet. Many of those things. And we went in, they, they all HBO Showtime and, and AMC all wanted to meet. They were like, we want to meet these guys. And we were like, that's good. Okay. Wow. So this was the summer of 2011. And, you know, I was like, man, okay. So we, we went into HBO and like <laughs> HBO's offices are, um, it looks like you're inside like God's coin fountain in the lobby. It's like a <laughs> giant cement white room. It's very beautiful. It's like, it's like, um, it's like Cameron's house in uh, Ferris Bueller where it's like, it's very, it's like a museum where it's like very cold and you're not mm-hmm. allowed to touch anything. Like that's what, a lot of reflective about. surfaces. And, yeah. yeah. It was like, uh, I think like at that point, like we saw like the band, the national was like leaving as we were coming in and we were like, Oh, like what are we doing? <laughs> we're so we're nobody. And they were very nice. So we met with them and then it was like, they're like, like, well, let us know what else you write. You know, it was like one of those, right? It was a general meeting. Yeah. Got a bottle of water, sat on someone's couch. Our um, our agent had been like, write a screenplay, like write a feature. Maybe we can do something on the feature side. And so we had a feature land on the blacklist, which is like the best unproduced oh, screenplay yes. of the year. Yeah. So this yeah. happened at the same time. So people were like, let's meet these guys. Very cool. It was just a bunch of couch stuff. And then Showtime, same thing, you know? Yeah. Nice people. Great. Just stuff. a bunch of couch stuff. That is another podcast waiting to happen. <laughs> Just a, a bunch yeah. of couch stuff. Yes. <laughs> no French dips were there. Maybe no. that would be nicer than the bottle of water, but yeah. uh, we did get our parking validated. Okay. And there was That's nothing, good. there was nothing else happening. It was like, we did these general meetings from our feature. We were doing these general meetings from Halt. And it was like, okay, we were on Elizabeth Ryan and I were on our honeymoon and a, a show, the showrunner of that TV show, Pan Am, do you remember this show? Where yes. it was like short-lived so, ABC. Yep. Yeah. Set in the 60s. And yeah. then also the, the flight attendants were like maybe spies, which was like a weird twist. It was strange. Yeah. 
didn't last very long, but no. he had Red Hall while we were gone and he wanted to meet and I was on my honeymoon and I remember being with Elizabeth and being like, this is it. I missed my chance. Like, mm-hmm. of course he wants to meet on like the one time, like we're away, you know, my career's over because mm-hmm. I didn't get staffed on camp. <laughs> and, uh, that show, I think I didn't obviously last very long, but, but, uh, no. regardless, yeah, we got back and he had staffed the whole show and we were like, ah, <laughs> AMC kept canceling the, the meeting. They kept rescheduling it. They kept pushing oh, it. One like, of those. Oh, we like, oh, we can't do that. Oh, we can't come in. And I was really, it was like the summer I was feeling, I was like, man, what are we going to do? Like, yeah. Getting a I little panicked. I job. Yeah. And then a crazy thing happened, which was Steve Jobs died. Steve Jobs died that summer um, or maybe early fall. Okay. It was very shocking. And it was like, yeah, I remember that. Obviously everybody knew he was sick, but we had written our pilot before he had died. And all of a sudden there was renewed Renewed interest in that world. It was like, how did this guy come to be? There are all these profile pieces about, how he had done what he'd done. And then that stirred up a bunch of profile pieces about everybody else. And so by the time we went into AMC, which was end of October, I was like, this is it. I was like, I knew that they, you know, our reps had said, okay, they want to talk to you about Halt, but they also want to go through their slate and tell you about what they're doing. And I was like, okay. And I decided, I was like, what, I'm going to try to talk about Halt and Catch Fire as long as possible. Yes. Like, That's I'm just going to try and tell you, like, throw me out of the meat. The, <laughs> I'm going to stay in. I'm just going to. And I literally had practiced all these sound bites. I'd written things down, you know, things I thought sounded smart about the show and concise. Mm-hmm. And and I, I remember driving. I was driving from downtown in L.A. And I drove the 10 freeway down. And I exited Cloverfield. Uh, that's where their offices are. And I pulled into a 76 gas station and I sat in the parking lot and I. And I just sat there because I was I was an hour early and I just practiced out loud these sound bites. I was just like everything I could think of in my head. Yeah. And Chris and I were on the same page. I was like, we should just talk as much as we can about Halt, like keep them talking about Halt. And and we went in and they they brought us into a conference room. It was the first time we were in a conference room. Graduated from the couch. I like yes. it. Yeah. We still got bottles of water, which was nice. Okay. But we, like, we got brought into a conference room. And I was like, ooh, a conference room. And they had posters for all their shows, which at that point was like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, um, and The Walking Dead. Oh, my God. So I was like, yeah. Two of the best shows ever and the highest rated cable show in history. Yep. And then behind us was Rubicon, <laughs> which was a cool show. It was yeah, like, Rubicon, it was. But at that point, it had already been canceled. So they moved it to the wall behind us. I was like, oh. Um, <laughs> That's a and bad then, vibe, but still. I know we were like, yeah. okay, you know, but, and then they came in and it was, um, it wasn't just one executive. It was Ben Davis, Susie Fitzgerald and, and Owen Shiflett came in and they all had copies of our script. And that was a good sign. We were like, they have copies yes. of our script. They printed out our script. Are we going to do a reading? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a stage reading. Yes. Um, and Ben Davis had read it from this agent and, and, and he really liked it. And we talked to them for about two hours and it felt good. And I was like, that was a really good meeting. And we left. And I remember that that day, Obama was in Los Angeles. He was talking. So like all the city was shut down. 
So I had to go mm-hmm. way south to go home. I couldn't use the freeway. It was like, forget it. Yeah. So I went like the really south way, which actually takes you by USC, which is funny. Ah, took full circle. Yeah. Yep. It took me like two hours to get home. Yeah. I got home, you know, saw Elizabeth and went up to my, our loft and, and uh, I had an email from the agent and he, he said, you know, the meeting went, meeting went well. I checked in with them. He said, and he, I remember he said, don't hold me to this, but I think I can sell this to them. Holy and shit. That wow. was the craziest thing. And I remember I, I was like, wow. And so then we were off to the races. It was like, okay. And there was a lot of steps between that and getting it on the air, but, but yeah, yeah that was the, I know that's a long version of it. This is this this whole story will just be part one of the podcast. <laughs> Pretty much. No, but it's so <laughs> worth it. What an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, I love story. that so much. Well, yeah. one of the hallmarks of the series and why I think it works so beautifully well beyond the writing, the directing, killer music, the production specs, the history of um, computers and everything else, of course, is your incredibly gifted ensemble cast in Lee Pace, Mackenzie Davis, Scoot McNary, Carrie Bechet and Toby Huss. What was the casting process like? And do you know what it was about each of these actors that made you think this is the one? Was it? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a cast that I think even into season two or three, we were like, we wouldn't be able to get these people like all together at this point. Yeah, um, because they were so ascendant and amazing. Um, you know, when they bought the script, it was in. They didn't. They didn't fully acquire it for another month and a half. So they picked okay. it up at the end of 2011. You know, and that was a lot of hand wringing. I was, you know, I was I was very nervous about it. Ben Davis was kind of coaching us from the background on the set of The Killing. Remember that show? Yeah, he was very good he would call show. us from yep. the parking garage and he would talk, talk to us about like what we needed to say in the next meeting mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, when they finally picked it up, um, we went back to that bar, which was fun and celebrated and like, oh, cool. Ben came and, you know, it was, it was really amazing. Um, and then we went into development, which was the weirdest thing. I mean, you're in, you're, you're doing network notes. Um, you're trying to see the forest from the trees. They brought it. That's when they brought in our producers, which was Melissa Bernstein and Mark Johnson from Grand Via. They produced Breaking Bad. Yes. Um, and then Mark, you know, Mark had won an Academy Award for Rain Man, you know, back in the day. So they were amazing people. So, you know, now we were working with the people who had, were making Breaking Bad, which was the pilot I had read, which was crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, we went into this thing called the Bake Off. So AMC, it took us about a year. It was almost a year to the day. And then we had to go present to the head of programming with Mark and Melissa and just talk through what this show would be. And we had to deliver this, I think, 20-page document. Like, you know. Like a series like, Bible. But, it would but, be. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, the show was nothing. Like, whatever we put in that series, it was not what the show. I mean, I think spiritually, yes. But like all the plot or whatever. None of, <laughs> none of it. Yeah. But they knew. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. It's kind of like you just prove that you can, that there's a story. Yeah. That you have the skills to tell a yeah. multi-season, yeah, big arc. And so I think it's probably around... November, they said, okay, we, we want to shoot the pilot. And this was back when they were still shooting pilots, which a lot of places don't do anymore. Now they yeah. do mini rooms, which I've, I've been through that process with AMC actually and, and um, subsequent project, but it, it, it's, um, 
it has its pros and it has its cons for sure. Mm-hmm. Because you're not writing to actors. You don't know what they sound like. You don't know what's working on screen, what's not. And then they yeah. ask you to go you know, six episodes deep into a season. And you're like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot on faith. Um, but we were kind of one of the last in to shoot the pilot. And then we went into, we went into casting and we brought in um, Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas who had cast Breaking Bad and, and I think The Walking Dead, I believe. And uh, that was such a, I, look, I, everything I did was the first time I'd ever done it, right? It was like, yeah. what's this? You know, like, <laughs> and Chris and I, Chris and I show ran the pilot. Like we were, we were the writers in the pilot. They did, we didn't get our sh- series showrunner. Until um, three, right? Like- until, well, season, when, when we went to series, we got Jonathan Lisko for okay. season one and two and, 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 and we worked with him. Okay. to run the show and then he peeled off and then we did three and four ourselves but uh it was just chris and i in the pilot and and obviously we had mark and melissa but we 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 read the characters right you get a s- specific you know scene for each mm-hmm. one the sides and they come in and it's crazy like the the people that came in i mean at this point i feel like i could talk about who was there because this would have been 2013 mm-hmm. like probably like early 2013, probably January is when we started. I mean, you're, I was at the casting offices every day for hours. And for Gordon, we saw, um, we saw Jimmy Simpson who had been in Zodiac. Wow. Uh, We saw Jason Mansukis came in and read for Gordon, which was incredible. Yeah. Um, The people that came in read for Joe, it was like David Harbour came in and read for Joe. Obviously Mm -hmm. this was Stranger Things. Um, we met with Ryan Philippi. We met with Wes Bentley. We met with um, so many different people and it's all happening simultaneously. Like certain people are coming in to read and then you're setting meetings with actors that you want to meet with. Yep. So it's all at once. And, um, let's see. And then, and then, but for Joe and Gordon, we were like Sharon and Sharon, like, those are probably, those are, we're going to see a bunch of people read. But mm-hmm. those are probably going to be offers, which is where you just go to the actor, you meet with them and you're like, do you want to play this part? And they go, yes. Yeah. Right. And we met with Lee for Joe and um, it was over the internet, but before this, it yep. was like Skype and it he was snowing where he was in New York. And, you know, he had done pushing daisies he had just done lincoln and like actually it was actually yes. his role in lincoln as the senator who was like i don't think i'm convinced that i was like that seems like joe i was like yeah he's like rather outspoken and kind of confident in a way that is bothersome to the people around him and i was like yeah I like that and so we talked to lee for a long time and at that point the i think the first person that had come in where i was like that has to be the character was Carrie who played Donna. Oh, love her. Yeah. We had seen so many people and she came in. I didn't see her in person. Um, it was a tape that came in for some reason. I don't think Chris and I had been there. And I was like, I was like, that's, that's, her. Who, that's who it has to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm trying to remember people that came in for Donna. I was like, I feel like Karen, Karen Gillian came in. Okay. Um, like a bunch of different people came. I can in. see that. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it was like, we can't cast, <laughs> we can't cast Donna before we cast Gordon and, and Gordon yeah it was like hold on so and you know because I was like we got we can't live. and there were days I'd come home and be like the cast is going to be terrible it's going to be all these people 
that are terrible. No one wants to do the show. And I'd be really upset. And then I'd be like, this person's going to play Gordon. And then, you know, and, and then, you know, then, then Scoot, you know, said yes. And what turned out what was amazing with Scoot was he wrote us a personal email and he was like, I grew up in Dallas. And he oh, I love that. How he, he's like, my dad didn't work in computers, but he was a salesman. And like, this was his experience and it was at this time. And this is a very personal story. And this really resonated with me. And I was like, and he went to a rival high school of mine. I was like, well, this seems, <laughs> and, and it was totally coincidental that he was like, I'm going to do the show. And we were like, wow, we have Scoot. And I think at that point we had, you know, Lee, it was like within days. Right. Yeah. And then we were, we were like, Carrie's incredible. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, Oh my God, Scoot and Carrie, have played a married couple before in the movie Argo. Argo, yes. <laughs> they they had been married in the seventies in Argo, and Please so right into you're that. like, come on, yeah, yeah. And I think like there are there is a because I know Ben Affleck um, had them all live in a house, a period house for a time when he did Argo. I heard and he took, that. Yeah, yeah, and he took Polaroids of, or they took Polaroids of each other because there was a Polaroid camera in the house. And some of the pictures of Gordon and Donna in the show and Halt are actually pictures from the Argo set that Carrie uh, or the other cast members took of Carrie and Scoot together, which is incredible. Oh, cool. Because they still had them. So, yeah. And then the hardest person to cast was Cameron. Cameron, I bet. And there was a time when I was like, we're not going to, this person doesn't exist. I was like, we created somebody that, doesn't exist. And I was like, this is impossible. So many contradictions. So cool. So confident. Yeah. People, people would come in and play the tough exterior. But then know, this. Kind of it. Yeah. Some people would come in and play it um, very kind of overtly awkward because of how she is, right? I mean, she's mm-hmm. kind of almost. Cameron is almost on the spectrum in the show. We talked about that. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, all of the characters probably are. I think we talked about that except for when I say we, I mean like the writer's room, except for <laughs> um, Donna. <laughs> you yeah. Know I mean? like she's <laughs> the one that's actually the most adjusted and boss, you know? Uh, but so we, we were just getting, we were getting these really tough reads and, and, and um, we had, Juan Campanella came in at that point and he had attached to direct. And we were very excited about that because I watched Secret in Their Eyes and I was like, this is the guy. Right. I mean, I was like, this is, yeah. I mean, and that was that was a Mark Johnson suggestion. He was like, you need to see this movie. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was, we had also talked, it's funny, we had also talked to Patty Jenkins, believe it or not. Oh, cool. And Patty Jenkins brought in pictures of herself in the 80s where she looked like Cameron with like the punk. Nice. Head. And we were like, wow. And she was wildly impressive too. But when we talked to Juan and we saw his film, we were like, mm-hmm. this is, that's the one. Do it. He is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. He is oh, so really? funny. Oh, really? That is so yeah, funny. He yeah. He did like Strangers with Candy and some other stuff. I mean, he's very funny and very quick-witted. He's always singing on set. Oh. He, he was part of the casting process at that point. And Mackenzie Davis came in and read... And um, we we saw her, and and I think that it was immediate. It was yep. like it was like a late afternoon. It was like who else is left? You know, and I was like, ah. And she came in, and it was like, and she asked. She was the only person to ask why her name was Cameron. Oh, so why is her name okay. Cameron? 
And, and I told her, cause we knew, I knew at that point, yeah. Kristen, I, knew, I said, her real name is Catherine, but she calls herself Cameron, which was her father's name. And her father died in Vietnam. Yep. And Mackenzie was really moved by that. Mm. And we posted the tape and I remember driving back and I think we got 10 minutes from the casting office and Ben Davis from AMC called and he was like, I just watched the Mackenzie Davis uh, tape. We have to hold her like immediately. Like we can't let her no. take any other deal. We, we have to. And um, you know, at that point, I mean, now it's funny, right? It's like Mackenzie Davis, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which has been amazing to watch. But like back then it was, again, this is 2013. So she had to screen test. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she screen tested against, who else did we screen test? We screen tested Mackenzie, Dakota Johnson. Oh, wow. And Brie Larson. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the three of them came in and they were all incredible yeah um and and there was a lot of discussion around it and but it it was for me with great actors who i've loved watching do incredible stuff since um i it was always mckenzie it was like it was like this is this is the it was just just because it was the character it was like she, 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 in so many ways, she, we've talked about how she is Cameron. She's just nicer than Cameron. Okay. <laughs> and then we, we did, we did uh, Bosworth and that was a character that I conceived as being very grounded. And, and then kind you of met, like oak, I had a right? question like a about Texas that. Oak. It yeah. was like, this guy is going to come in like a hard ass. We didn't know how long he was going to last. He was set up very much as an antagonist okay. and the old guard to Joe and Gordon and Cameron. And Toby came in and Juan was actually there. He was actually in the States as part of the casting at that point. And he was all over the room. Like they couldn't um, go hard. Who was like, I think filming at that point, who's now a a senior partner at the casting firm. Like she was, couldn't keep him in the frame. frame. He was like all over the place. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell was that? And Juan, I remember Juan turning around and looking at us and said, that guy could win you that guy could win an Emmy award for your yeah. show. Big and I time. was like, and I was like, again, I was like, what? I was like, wait a minute. Cause it was like, as a writer, it was like in my head. And I watched the tape more and more. And by the time we screen tested him, I was like, this is the kid. And, and man, God, I mean like, what a gift. I mean, yes. we got a fifth character out of the show. I mean, like he, he became the character that that it was the resilient character that survived against the odds no matter what. I mean, he was the underdog of the underdogs. I mean, he just kept going. Yeah. He gave us so much. And and it was when we filmed this uh, that scene very early where Cameron is there late at night and he catches her and brings her into the office. Mm-hmm. When we saw that footage, we were like, this Those is, two. this is, we were like, that's, that, this is something. Like, yes. we were like, this is, what's this, right? And I think, I will always do that in every show. Anything I write from now on, it's like whatever character, I want to just try every character permutation possible in a scene just to see what happens. Yeah. Um, and so, so we knew at that point we were like, wow, you know? And so by the time we were done, the cast we had lined up, I was, I was, it was, it was the characters I had in my head. It was like, this is incredible. I mean, all of them. And then, I mean, when we went, when we started shooting that pilot, it, like they were, they were all so, so good. And 
Lee gave gives a, do, a monologue about the future in the pilot. And there's a pilot version of that that didn't make it in. We reshot it. He did the same monologue. And so the performance is just as good. It's just in a different location. Mm-hmm. But I walked, I walked out of the set and cried because it was amazing to see it come to life like that and to see Lee do that. And mm-hmm. I've had moments of like that with all of the characters. I mean, it, with all those actors. And, and I, I, I can still text them and bother them and they'll do the same to me. And, and, you know, they took it so seriously. They did, they did table reads every weekend. They lived in the same house together for the last couple of seasons. I mean, they're. That's incredible. Yeah. Their commitment was like, they were like a, they were like a theater troupe. Yeah. They were amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on a lot of the things that I actually wrote down for early on question wise about Juan Jose Campanella and Toby Huss, who, I mean, I love John Bosworth when I was watching the show originally, and I was one of the people watching from the beginning, but um, watching it again, you just realize how he is essentially the heart or the father figure holding together this group um, early on. And I wondered if that was a character who kind of just, was strengthened the more you saw Toby do these scenes. And it sounds like it really was. We yeah. broke to Toby. Yes. We could do. I mean, it, Chris says this a lot, but it's like a, at a certain point, if it's working, the show starts telling you what it is. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's so a good point. You start writing to, and all the characters, and again, this is pilot versus mini room aside. Like when you see the footage, you can go, Oh, wow. I want to see more Cameron and Boz scenes. Yeah. You know? Um, I want to see, I want to see more. um, I want to see Joe with the, with the kids. You know what I mean? Yes. Let's, let's, let's have Joe have a 12 year relationship with Gordon's kids. You know what I mean? It was like, where would that have come from? Building a fort. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to like, he's, you know, helping Haley with her sexual identity in season four. I mean, it's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like that, that's, it was very novelistic in that way, but also, I mean, it was, it was them. It was like, it was, you're just, you're just, you're writing, you know, you're writing to what you see, to what the, the, the actors are doing. I mean, they're just, they were, they were amazing. And I, I, I think this, I think it's an incredible show as well, but there are, there are echoes of it, of the feeling I had on my show, watching the cast of Succession. Okay. Because it, yeah. in terms of ensemble cast, it doesn't get better. Yeah. Everyone is firing on all cylinders and you can tell the writers are, writing to the cast exceptionally mm-hmm. well. Yep. There's such a mutual understanding of the characters between the actors and the writers. It's like they're so tuned in to each other and just yeah. I was telling Elizabeth, I was like, I would watch Succession if there were no plot. I would, I would too. Characters just yeah. do stuff. I don't care what they're doing. Like no. I, I look and, and I think the best shows are like that where it's like I I mean I obviously I'm invested, but I watched them do anything. I got to watch limitless episodes of them just doing their lives. Hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> so they're so good. Like the plot is great, but like to me, it's secondary to the terrarium of these human beings, you know, coexisting, you know, yeah. I feel like at our best moments, we, we, we touched some of that with Hall, which was cool. Yeah. One of my favorite early episodes is the one at Comdex which is a blast. And obviously you guys must've thought so too, because you revisited it again later in one of the show's most moving episodes. So what did you know about Comdex going in and were any of these incidents like with the printer based on fact at all? So we had, we had tech consultants on the show every season. I bet. One that was there through the, throughout the whole thing was a guy named Dr. Carl Ledbetter who had 
reverse engineered, you know, an IBM PC twice, just himself. Um, at this point, he's um, a, a pretty big VC investor. Mm-hmm. So he's been through kind of all of it. And he, did he work at IBM? He might have. Yeah, I think he did back in the day. And his insights were really helpful. And there was another author who um, had written a book about that era who um, came in and I see spent a whole day telling us the ground level stories from Comdex that didn't make it into his book. Okay. It was that kind of ground level stuff that the show like thrived on. Right. So like the shrimp tower that Joe gets the idea that the job, the, 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 the real deals will be made in the hotel rooms. All that stuff came from this guy who was there, right? Like it was, it was that. So it was that lived in experience that we, we drew from and harvested. And then in revisiting it, we just, we wanted the show to kind of come full circle and, you know, you see the cycles repeat in people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You also talked about how the actors, their performances and their insights kind of adjusted your perceptions of the characters as you went. When I was watching it again, I realized, I mean, I love all of the characters. I think the first time I watched, it was very easy to identify with Cameron as, oh, Cameron's my hero because she's the coolest. But the more I thought about the series and when I watched it this time, I was far more, especially because I knew where it was going, impacted and affected by Gordon, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially the vulnerability and the mania that Scoot McNary brings to the role. Did you always know where you intended his arc to fall by season four or did that kind of develop? I think from the, from the bake off meeting, we talked about some rudimentary concept of Joe and Gordon switching places. They don't necessarily do that. And I think there's more nuance to it. Yeah. But we did want to have Gordon have an ascent and rise to power. He does. um, Yeah. That activates his ego. And we wanted Joe's ego and arrogance to be dismantled for him to find his humanity. I think Mm -hmm. that that was always in the concept of the show. Um, What's amazing about those two guys um, as actors, they're amazing guys otherwise, but um, as actors, you know, Scoot, Scoot, he's, he's like a scrappy Texan, very masculine guy. Mm -hmm. So to have him step as an alpha into the role of the engineer was great because what was underneath was a a, a kind of primal nature to the dude that you could feel even when he was getting, you know, crapped on by Joe every five seconds or or needing some other frustrating thing and, and having, you know, you know, being emasculated every five seconds, you knew that he was resilient (laughs) in that way. And Joe is the same. Lee is the same way. Like Lee is the, Lee is, you know, six, three. Yeah. And like, he looks like the marble man, like, or like (laughs) the marble man wishes he looked. And, (laughs) and then yet, and he's very intimidating in size and stature and voice and, you know, the timber of his voice and all that. And then he has such an incredible, softness and almost fragility to some of the humanity he plays um he does he has kind of a wounded innocence to him that is incredible Mm -hmm. um so when you could get that duality coming out in the scene together you know so you've got you know basically these two guys who have got each got two sides um it 
it, it added the dimensions that you really wanted so that neither one was just kind of pigeonholed into a, you know, a box that was very expected, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, my favorite season, and I think a lot of people's as well, is the mutiny season or season two, which was so bold because you guys shook everything up at the end of the first season and sent everyone in new directions, which would not be the first time you did that. That's one of the things I loved about Halt and Catch Fire. You didn't know where it was going. Everyone does remarkable work in season two, especially Carrie Bechet, because Donna finally begins to see herself as more of an independent woman, probably gets closer to who she was at Berkeley with Gordon, and also has to juggle her roles as a wife and a mother. So I'd love to know more about season two, the women in tech in the period and rise of mutiny. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I think we always wanted Donna to to be a force to be reckoned with in the show. Yeah. We, we tried to see that into the pilot, you know, that she is a working mother, that she is an engineer, that she is maybe pulling in even more money than Gordon. Yep. Uh, you know, that she can fix the speak and spell. She can open it up, you know, work on the PCB board and, and, and have it up and running again for the kids. Like that she can juggle these, these roles. I mean, you know, like that, the duality that was in Carrie was great too, right? I mean, that's how we were able to grow her into the, you know, the the VC shark in season yes. four. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and start her as the, you know, the housewife, you know, like that's, that was the, the nurturer and getting Gordon yeah, out of jail. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, uh, you know, so season two, I mean, look, season one, <laughs> you know, it's a divisive season. You know, I know. The, I think I remember, it gets stronger as it continues, it actually. Yeah. I think, I think we've, we've, you can feel us, meaning the writers, find it. Yes. Mid-season. I think it was I like, think, like around episode four or five. I started to feel a shift. Yep. Yeah. But I me, liked it right yeah. away. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, I'm very proud of the pilot. I think the yeah. pilot is kind of, it's kind of airtight, you know, corporate thriller piece that I like. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I wanted it to be. I mean, I, I was so proud of that pilot. It was so it was it's pretty. I mean, I still remember being in a cab. And reading the Vanity Fair review of the pilot after it aired, and it just destroyed us. And it was. Uh, Are you serious? Really, really oh, tough. was it too much Mad Men? I didn't like that. They kept just comparing it to Mad Men. All thing, right? You're able yeah. to go Mad Men, you know. Yeah. And you know, Lee had some comparisons early on, and and obviously that was there, but you know, there was a long play in the show. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that for me, the first season where I was like the first scene where it clicks in the first season where I'm like, Oh, wait a minute was when Joe takes the sledgehammer to the Nissan at the bar. That's one of my favorite moments. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, what's that? Show? I was like, let's write more of that show. I remember saying that even probably to Chris. That's it was seriously. Like, I, yeah. on Twitter, I've made that joke of like, the thing about Halt and Catch Fire is it gave us Lee Pace beating the hell out of a car. We didn't even know we needed it, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> it was the same thing for us. I think we were like, yeah. we didn't know. I don't think, Lee needed to, he was like, yeah. wait, this is, I think like there was a, there was something that kind of cracked open there that we were able to explore in the, in the rest of the episodes. And I felt like we were off and running from, from then on. And, you know, yeah. we, were, we were on the bubble at the end of season one, just because, um, you know, our ratings were low. Um, it was also weird in that weird transition time where there weren't yet streamers, you know, the, we were at this time where, like I told you, it was like we met with HBO, Showtime and AMC because those were the only places that were doing shows like this, which is crazy to think of because they're everywhere. Yeah, I know. But there was not a, there was not, you didn't watch Netflix. I think it had just come on and it was like, oh, season one is going to be on 
Netflix. Like that was a, a crazy new thing for us. It was like, Oh mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a guarantee that we were going to come back. And so we had a conversation with the network of what we would do. And and since we had nothing to lose, we were like, we want to shake everything up and we want to have the hero set be mutiny. Yes. Like Cardiff will still be there, but we want the hero set to be mutiny. Yeah. And this house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're like, let's build that house. That, that, in the first season, it's a location. And so we had to recreate that house on stage. Okay. And, um, uh, that was fun, but it, it, you know, yeah. it, it was a lot of work for our production designers um, to to overhaul everything every season. Um, you know, I think it, it drove them a little crazy, but they always did incredible work. And and um, yeah, we were like, it wasn't. There was never. We never said we're going to push Joe and Gordon into the background. We said no. We said, in terms of the innovative momentum, we're going to hand that baton to Cameron and 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 Donna all of a sudden mm-hmm. and have. Joe and Gordon, who were the Mavericks of season one, suddenly have to kind of be the establishment, right? That's what I kind of saw it as. Yeah, they were sort of driving all the decisions and driving everything forward in season one. And then women are like, but hey, wait a minute, what do I want? And that's what I like about it. Yeah. And then in season three, they're the establishment, right? They are. It was their their (laughs) rise to superiority to the point where like it's Donna becomes the power broker. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then that that continues on in season four. I mean, like it was it was what happens when the rebels become the system. And so, yep. you know, we kept telling that story over and over. Did they again. sell out, you know, that old thing exactly. in the yeah. 90s? Like when, when, yeah. punk rock, when punk rock sells out. Right. Yeah. Like that was the idea. It was like, ooh, Gordon and Joe, like, you know, Joe yeah. leaves IBM and then it's like, let's do this thing. And then they're the kind of going concern. Yeah. You know? and, and then, like and when then Green Day happened. made it and it's like everyone hated Green Day for five minutes. But yeah, same yeah. thing. The yeah, others- exactly. The other thing in season two is you added in some excellent cast members, um, a number of them, but James Cromwell was a great foil for a gentler version of Joe or Joe 2.0, the mm-hmm. aftermath. And Mark O'Brien as Cameron's new love interest, Tom, is one of my favorites. So how did you land on these characters for, you know, bringing them into the cast and also the actors? I think that, you know, with with both of those guys, I mean... Um... You, you, what's great. You, you keep casting, right? Like you yeah. get your main cast. And so then, but then Sherry and Sharon are getting the, and then Gohar, you know, are getting the scripts when they're released and there, there's an immediate, they put together breakdowns. They go find those characters that are going to appear in, you know, for one line, you know, what might be local casting up to we're flying out James Cromwell, like, you know, yeah. it's going to be a recurring character, you know, for, for Jacob Wheeler, that was a character we, we crafted as, as a weird foil for Joe. Um, and so we wanted some, someone that could play the kind of syncopated beat where it's not expected. You know, you're like, what's mm-hmm. this guy's deal? Right. And like, yep. mostly Joe is trying to figure out his own deal. Right. Like, and, but it's like, is this guy friend or foe? Constantly evolving. You're not sure if you can on? trust him. Yeah. And he, I guess his, I guess Jamie's, rep was a big fan of season one she was like oh, cool. i really like this show and so look we were on amc we were a small budget show on amc it's not like we can go get whoever we want right mm-hmm. but he really took to the material and he really took to the style of the show and and he agreed to come on and that that was uh 
that was a great, that was a crazy thing. The last time I had seen James Cromwell in person was when I was a screenwriting major and he was friends with my acting teacher. I had to take oh, acting for cool. writers. Yeah. I had to take acting for writers and he came in and talked to us. Um, and he spent the afternoon with us and told us LA confidential stories and talked to us oh, about wow. the Lachota Indians and, 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 you know, dolphins and, you know, yeah. I mean, he, he's like a, he's like an out there guy. Like in a, he lives it in, a, in an amazing way. And he's also six, seven. So he's taller than one me. of my favorite things about the show as a tall person is the amount of tall representation on this show. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think like Lee, like Lee sets the pace car for that. No pun yeah. intended, but like he literally does. So it's like, well, how are we going to frame these shots? And that, that mm -hmm. was kind of what was um, amazing about bringing in, um, Alexa on the show in season two to play Sarah because she is I think Sarah is literally like five two or five three yes and it was quite a contrast yes we, we were like let that happens and like oh, he's in course. a different place in his life like yeah. let's frame it and see like so we literally would have to do this with the camera we have to change we have oh. to put the camera vertically you know she's often like putting books away on like a stepping stool it's like stuff like that where you're like okay you know but uh um, it worked it, it was great you know and yeah like, oh they were so good together yeah yeah and she she was a great energy for him just because he was looking for that mm -hmm. kind of shelter in the storm and she she we wanted a character that was just very kind of she was stable in a way that the characters were of grounded Hulk were mm -hmm. not right she was like i have my life figured out i'm feeling pretty good about myself you know and then these people come into our life and mess it up. That was kind of what I happens know. to Sarah in the story of all catch fire where you're like, oh, yes. sorry. sorry, our show happened to you, but um, yeah, now they're yeah. the armadillo or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, you know, uh, Jamie came on and um, he's six, seven. And I, <laughs> I remember having to, ask him to say a line specifically. I was like on set and um, he, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not six, seven. Um, Who is? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, a, I'm like five, nine on a great day, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm already shorter than Lee and I came in and, and I really wanted him to say something specifically, you know, and, and he, he interrogated it, you know, and, and, and it was tough because he was way above me and, and he's also, you know, James Cromwell. And yeah, uh, I know Lee, I remember Lee was kind of like watching carefully to see what would happen. And um, uh, yeah, he, but he, he brought such, I mean, if, how could he not, you know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. to that role and just, just owned it in an incredible way. And then, you know, Mark, that was a, that was a read that came through from, Sh you know, Sharon and, and, and Sherry. And we were like, we need someone who can go toe to toe with Mackenzie. Yeah. Right? It really was that. It's like that you buy it, that you don't go, this guy is like roadkill mm -hmm. <laughs> Cameron. And, and Mark, Mark is, has such an exceptional um, razor sharp wit that, um, he he just held his own and i remember the clip at which he did his rehearsal was accelerated in oh, a way wow. that was he wasn't like he was just speeding through it it was just like this guy's brain moves faster than most people you could just feel it mm -hmm. and so it just ended up working out and we, you know we purposely dressed him super square you know which i thought, yeah. I thought was fun because he could play it you know he was like I, this is who i am like he would he he was that character in a great way, and but he could he could hold his own intellectually with her, 
Yeah. Um, it was great. And like, he's also, I mean, like Marcus, he's extremely funny and, um, and witty and so is Mackenzie. So like, it was perfect. Like they could just bounce mm-hmm. off each other. It was, it was yeah. Cool. He disarmed her in a way that I think was unexpected. And I liked yes. that. Yeah. 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 That's Very much. Yeah. Well, moving on to season three, one of my favorite episodes of the good wife is the one where there's essentially a mutiny. And for lack of a better word, they basically blow up the law firm and flip the script. I feel like you guys kind of did that in season three, where suddenly there's such a push and pull between who these characters were, who they are now and where they want to go that it was bound to combust, but it's no less heartbreaking when it happens both for Cameron and Donna, whose friendship was one of the best things about season two, and also Donna and Gordon as well. There's new alliances. Gordon and Cameron spending all day trying to win Super Mario was, I think, a highlight for every 80s baby, and I loved it. I also love the addition of Annabeth Gish, who is a great actress, and the start of these midlife existential crises, plus Joe and the are you safe antivirus angles. There's a lot going on. Tell me more about season three. Um, season three was was the first one where we took over as showrunners fully. So you know we were running the show with Jonathan and under his tutelage in the first two, and and we could not have lucked into a better mentor than that mm-hmm. guy. I think historically, creator and showrunner relationships can be thorny, right? Because here comes somebody who has yeah. more experience, who maybe has their own ideas, and then the the, the creators can likewise get a little close minded about what they envision. Um. Jonathan was extremely transparent with us and he was all about wanting to make the best version of the show we had come up with possible. And, and he's just the sweetest guy and like a master brain and, and everything we did as showrunners, we do still from his playbook. Mm -hmm. Um, He was, he was, it was really hard for him to leave. Um, You'd think that we'd be like, Oh, we get our own show. But like, no, we worked that well together. It was such a voice in the show and we loved him. We called ourselves the tripod <laughs> and uh, and for some reason we called him uncle sugar. I don't remember why. Oh, it was because there was in Georgia, there was some band playing called uncle sugar. <laughs> it was at, like some roadside bar. And I took a picture of it and I was like, this is our new nickname for you. And it stuck at which point he referred to us as our, as his uh, sugar nephews. There you go. Um, but he went to go do Animal Kingdom, which is a show he had been developing for years. And and, and he went to go do that. on Very TV. good show. Yeah. Yeah. And so he went and, and did that. And uh, and then it was Chris and I. And we were like, OK, well, at least we have the rest of our writers. And then for one reason or another, all of our writers were unavailable. So we I had, noticed there was yeah. a change. Yes. So we had we had we had Jason Cahill. Um, who had come off The Sopranos. We had Davi Waller from Mad Men, who just did Mrs. America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had Jamie Pacino, who who went off to go do Chicago PD and all of the crossover episodes for that show. Um, we lost everybody. It was like, oh, it, no. it was literally just Chris and I. We were like, and, and, and everybody else was gone. Um, Zach Whedon, who was actually from Rubicon, which is funny. And he met his wife, Eli Clark, on Rubicon. Eli, now the showrunner of Why the Last Man. Okay. Um, and, and was on Animal Kingdom with Jonathan. We always wanted Eli to write on Halt, but we could never get her um, schedule-wise. Um, Zach Whedon um, had, was was he went off and made a feature with Aaron Paul, which is which is funny because I literally did the same thing after Halt was over. Um, so he was unavailable. Everyone was unavailable for different reasons, and we were like, "Oh my God, what are we going to do? We got to build things from the ground up." We were just figuring out the tempo, and we got like 
we just got great people that were able to step up and like take over the show. I mean, it was the, the writer's rooms for season three and four were amazing. I mean, we got, um, we got Michael in season three, we got Michael Saltzman from Mad Men. We got Lisa Albert from Mad Men. Um, we got Allison Tatlock who had just come off the first season of stranger things. We got Mark Lafferty from, um, Manhattan. We got Julia Cho, um, who had just done Lodge 49. Uh, we had like in a, a great group of people. Um, and then, and then in season four, Zach came back, you know, it was like, it was an incredible, yeah. like we, we built, we still, I have a text chain on my phone called halters and it's all of those, it's those writers. Oh, which is great. That is um, so nice. Yes. And, and we just got along so much and, and we built that season and we, we brought, we brought in Evans Brown, who was incredible and, and, um, just a real artist. And I remember, I still remember his photograph presentation for what he wanted the show to feel like, um, once it moved to San Francisco, which is funny because we were still shooting in Georgia. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was like, this is weird. You know, like it, now it's going to double for Northern California. Yeah. We, we've done, we've done the flat. But plains you did Texas it very now. effectively. I thought. Yeah. 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 yeah I think we pulled it off. And, and a mm-hmm. lot of that is, is due to Evans and, and a lot of the directors we brought in. Um, and we rebuilt the whole new set. It was, it was a crazy thing to do. And, um, we, we wanted to, we wanted to shake everything up again. And, you know, we found Annabeth, which was a great ad. We wanted a mentor figure for Donna. Mm-hmm. We thought that, that would be, Oh, cool. I think she served cool. that role really well. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I loved her with Boz, Toby Huss, the chemistry. Yes. And that yeah. was something I think we discovered like on set. It was like, or watching okay. the footage. We were like, There's he's something. so charming in this scene with her. You know what I yeah. mean? And Annabeth, she can be so severe and kind of intimidating mm-hmm. in this great way. And then she also has this wonderful laugh. Yeah. And she laughs in a scene with Bosworth and we were like, this is kind of magical. Like what if we wrote to this? Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, we, we, we just, we started going from there and, and it was, it was fun to further evolve it. I mean, that became our, our thing, which was like, let's just blow up the show. You know, we, we yeah. would talk about that. Like we're going to, we know we're going to blow it up. So what do we do? Like, that's what we would say in the writer's room. Um, you know, we're going to blow it up and then, and then what, and, and, you know, between two and three, we, we blew it up the, uh, you know, the writer's room too, but we, we rebuilt something that was, was just as good and um, really, 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 really wonderful place to be the writer's room of season three and four. It was a, it was an awesome experience. Yeah. One of my favorite creative writing professors used to say, sometimes the best thing you can do is write yourself into a corner and then, yeah, try to figure out where to go from there. And that's when, you're going to have some new brainstorms. And I think your show did that very well. I'm glad you brought up the incredible writing staff because I think you guys at this point were really knocking these episodes out of the park. In the rewatch, I was paying much closer attention to who wrote which episodes because you did have such a remarkable uh, group of writers. And a few patterns started to emerge, like you and Chris Rogers had those huge ensemble apps. Other writers were really good at Donna and Gordon. And one of the MVPs in my eyes for Joe and Cameron, at least, is Mark Lafferty. He wrote two of, I think, the greatest episodes of the show and two wonderful ones for Joe and Cameron, meeting once again at Comdex after she'd married Tom and moved to Tokyo. And then that epic 
before sunrise or truth about cats and dogs style episode with their marathon phone call that goes on for roughly 24 hours, which is juxtaposed with Gordon's professional world just falling apart. I love that. So talk to me about those episodes, uh, Mark's work, and also just your incredible writing staff. I mean, yeah, those, those episodes were, um, were really, really special on the page. I mean, I think Mark is somebody when he turns in pages, um, I would find myself checking my own work and going, am I as good as this? Like, do I deserve to be here? <laughs> um, they're all like that. And I think that was what I think was, I don't know. I mean, look, my experience is rarefied, but I, I think, I don't know if it's like this on other shows, but like we did not do very big passes on everybody's episodes. And it's something we learned from Lisco, which was if you can hire someone, like you can that. do it on the page. Mm-hmm. Lisco was very much like, we're going to meet a lot of people who are very impressive in a room and they're really interesting and they're very charming and they might even have great ideas. Mm-hmm. If they can't execute on the page, then it doesn't matter. That was yeah. his view. And there's some truth to that where he was like, the last thing you want is to be in the middle of prep on an episode that, and you'll be writing another episode and then a draft comes in and you got to completely rewrite that draft. Yeah. And he was like, and furthermore, when you get a writer who can execute on the page, if there are idiosyncrasies in that in that writing style that you're like, well, is that exactly what Joe would say? Jonathan was like, that's kind of where the magic of the show can live. He was like, I, I resist the impulse to completely unify everything. Yeah. In my own tone. He's like, I, I let certain words go by. I let phrasing go by just because yeah, yeah. in a way that, that it, it, it makes it, 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 it makes it a little bit more organic, mm-hmm. right. And realistic. And yep. so we would barely touch writers episodes by and large. Um, oh, that's so cool. Would come in, we'd, they'd be really, really good. And we might add things here and there, or we carry it through, you know, prep and, and tone and all of those kinds of things and make director adjustments or things like that. But it was really just to save them time or if they were busy or if they were writing another episode, something like that. So, um, and the Mark is, Mark is something who, his material is just so incredibly strong structurally on the page. Um, he's one of the best writers I've, I've met. Mark is an Iowa Writers Workshop grad. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. He's, he's that guy. He is always, he's often looked to as the go-to person in the room to rework a script if the showrunner is unavailable. Um, okay. He is the fix it. Um, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of, he's the kind of your best hitter in the room. Um, that said, like our room was full of those people, which was absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, you could give a script to anybody and they would, they would punch it up, but no one really needed to. And we wanted, we wanted everyone to have ownership over what they did. So, Mm-hmm. That was important to us as well. Um, Mark's episode in season three was the first season of TV I directed. Um, I wanted to direct an episode in season three. I felt the time. I, I, I felt that I had the courage and gumption to kind of ask, you know, and I mm-hmm. asked Melissa, first, you know, I was like, can I direct one? You know, she was like, I'm surprised you waited this long, you know, but now that you have, I think the answer is like an easy yes, you know, yeah. and the network was very supportive as well. I was so nervous. I mean, I was, I was extremely anxious. I, I, you know, um, 
but I wasn't in the material because I had Mark's script, right? And I had mm-hmm. Mackenzie and Lee, and I knew what I was going to be doing. And it was, you know, we were also going to jump time, right? We jumped four years, yep. I think, between episodes. So it was like the last two episodes of season three are kind of a mini season unto themselves. It's kind of how we thought of it. Mm-hmm. It's like a little TV movie. And um, I was I was very nervous, but but uh, we pulled it off, and I I I couldn't I, I I had trouble sleeping, you know, like yeah. we started prep and all of those things. But and I did a late episode too, so that most of the material was written, and I could go do that while Chris, you know, was back in Los Angeles handling post and all those types of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, yeah. and then. And then he did the phone call episode, which was, and the phone call episode, I will say, I'll attribute the success of that episode because that's something hard to, you know, to pull that off. It's directed by Mira Manon. And I think it's her first one hour drama credit, at least. And Mira's now going to go do Miss Marvel. She's doing oh, wow. Yeah. And, I, and, and she was an incredibly grounded person who came in and was like, yeah, and she just shot it. And it was, it was like perfect. And um, it just looked really, really good. I love um, that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the camera dynamics, I will say, and I'll say this on the podcast too. Um, we, the, we had a, a camera and B camera, right? You have two cameras um, and B camera, uh, our operator, Steve Campbell, um, just a very common, cool, collected guy, um, you know, from Atlanta, showed mm-hmm. up to the work, just a solid guy who would go get you any shot and, and a guy who would turn B camera into, it wasn't just garbage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But some B camera is an afterthought for directors. I think our directors really paid attention to B camera, but I think also Steve and the B camera team made you pay attention to the B camera footage. Really, like, wow, I think we can actually go to Steve shot here. Um, Steve passed away uh, a few days oh, ago. Which was very I'm sick. so sorry. Yeah, it's, I don't know the full story of that, but but I do want to um, commemorate him because he did he did. You did turn in some incredible footage for the show um, on a team that sometimes is very much overlooked or forgotten. Yes. Steve Campbell was B camera operator on the first two seasons. Jordan Sloven was our B camera operator in season three. And then we had Paige Thomas in season four. And uh, so, yeah, so, you know, all those dynamic shots. I mean, the filmmakers we had come in to do that stuff when it can be very talk heavy, right? Was. Yeah. we were really lucky to have them yes another bold aspect of the show something a lot of people brought up when i said i wanted to talk about it is just how queer friendly and progressive it is in its revelations about joe working in an old male love interest and a moving early reveal um fairly early into the series and then in this season which also factors in the hiv virus in the periphery or the double meaning of are you safe was this always intended early on or did it naturally evolve? Because I thought it was really beautiful also the way you then worked in the revelation about Haley Clark in season four. And I thought that was very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it was something that was definitely there from the early days of the writer's room. I think, it, you know, the pilot was something that Chris and I crafted. But mm-hmm. then in those first few days of the writer's room, especially at the very beginning of a show, um, that's not yet on the air. Um, you're just spending a lot of time talking about the character. And we spent weeks um, and weeks talking about each of them individually, going all the way back through their childhoods and, and through. And it, it wasn't it wasn't just linear. You're you're talking about a lot of things that get thrown out, but but giving Joe 
that quality and having him be bisexual, we thought could be really interesting Yeah, in terms of his relationship to Cameron, in terms of his relationship with the kind of corporate systems that he'd come out of mm-hmm. um, in a staid um, New England kind of um, blue blood class that he was from, right? That, that, yep. that translated into, you know, his career path and everything that seemed to be dictated for them. It was, it was, it was a question of why would this guy buck so much of that and turn against it? Yeah. And what is, what is roiling underneath the surface of this guy um, that is not plot focused? What's driving that. Right. And so we had a lot mm-hmm. of conversations about that. And we had some conversations with, with Lee as well. Um, you know, and, and so it was something that we slowly and surely, you know, built out over the course of that season. And, and, you know, then we had the character of Simon come in in season one and, mm-hmm. uh, we thought that, that that's the way that Cameron learns that Joe is bisexual. Yeah. And, and we, we, we just wanted to treat these things with, I hate to say, not a contemporary lens, but a kind of mature lens, you know, mm-hmm. with a, with a kind of maturity and an understanding of the complexity and nuance of the issues, right? Whether that be feminism, something that yeah. we rarely talked about in text, um, you would just see it and know it was an undercurrent right? It was there, Mm -hmm. you know, the pervasion of technology, you know, in, in our lives today, it was something that was there. It was like these characters, like, we're going to change the world. And you're like, well, you are. And like, but then you're also like, I'm a slave to my phone now. Like you didn't have to say that, you know what I mean? And like, it was same. it was the same with, with Joe or Haley's sexuality in the same, in the same way we could, we could, we could just a little went a long way. We talk a lot about atomic weight, right. And the atomic weight of these things was potent. So you could drop a little in or you could do one dinner scene where the guy like disgustingly, you know, propositions Cameron and Donna at the same time. And that can carry you for, you know, another Mm -hmm. season or two where you're like, geez, remember that? Like if you're following along, it's there and it's cumulative, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's very, very good. And it's the right way to approach it because it's better than just overtly stating these things. Like that's what makes them human and that's why they're so real and that's why we love them yes well season four brings us to the 90s which is when i came of age so i loved everything about it but it also leads us to the end of the road for gordon and to that beautiful wrenching episode you directed goodwill written by zach whedon which chronicles the aftermath in the wake of his death for all of the characters including his own adorable love interest anna klumsky i loved that you brought in the my girl come on i'd love to know more about the gordon medical arc and how that was developed and changed over time as someone who's had a number of medical issues, it hit me really hard, but I also thought it was very well done, especially in that metaphorical and literal episode where he gets lost in the parking garage and then falls. I don't know why that episode just sticks out in my brain as being so genius. So for Gordon, was this all planned or how did it progress? You know, it was something that I think, again, it wasn't there at the beginning, but it's something that arose in conversations in season two. Um, we knew that we knew that Gordon and his backstory had come from more of a blue collar background than Joe. And we had this idea that his, his father was a mechanic, that it was all about hands-on stuff, Mm -hmm. right. And, and hands-on machinery. And that he'd grown up around that. In fact, we, you know, in that episode where Gordon goes home and visits his brother, who's played by Kyle Rankin, 
Um, we had shot very good episode. Oh, yeah. thank you. Um, we, we had, that was the first uh, California episode because Gordon's in California, so we had to add yeah. stuff into the background. Um, we shot in the garage. We shot in the family garage. We dressed and shot the family garage and saw. We were with Kyle Rankin in the family garage, and it was really cool to see that. Um, it didn't work for the perspective because we were just so in. It was weird to jump to someone you'd never met, even in a phone call. It just didn't feel right. We had to be with Gordon in that moment. Mm-hmm. But um, I often think of that set because that was where Gordon grew up and it informed his love of machines. And, you know, we dressed that garage to make it because at that point it was known, I think, in the show that that he had this condition um, to be rather filthy and, and cluttered and contaminated and yeah. all of these things. So. Um, you know, we were looking for, we were looking for some sort of clarifying vector for Gordon in season two. And, um, we, we knew that he was going to have a surge in ego and we knew we were going to want to dismantle that ego for him because that would be the only way the character would really be able to find peace. And I think that was Mm -hmm. something that we wanted for Gordon and we definitely wanted for, we wanted for all of them. Right. But yeah. Um, Joe was kind of the flagship character of that thematic story. Gordon, we would want to do that as well. He was going to kind of follow along on Joe's, you know, paint huffing ride and get, get high on himself and his ambition (laughs) and, you know, have it come to come crashing down, but we didn't want to have it be done in the exact same way that we were doing with Joe. So it was like, well, what could be something that could lance his ego and make him um, shift his thinking about himself and his whole way of life. Um, and, and I started to research, uh, something that could be wrong with his brain. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, uh, you know, you're talking about medical issues, you know, um, I've struggled with some, some mental health issues in my life. You know, I have pretty intense OCD and things like this. And mm-hmm. I think that was something that I was exploring a lot at the time. And, you know, Elizabeth will, you know, if Elizabeth were on this podcast, she would tell you that Gordon is the avatar for me in the show. Oh, really? Um, I do think that that's limiting um, for the character. And I think it's a lot more than that, but uh, it's a contribution of so many different people, but I would definitely put some of my more internal um, modes into Gordon for sure. And if there were a character that I identified with uh, the most, I think it would probably be Gordon. Um, And so this idea of being tripped up by your own body or your own mind, um, where um, you finally have something in your grasp and something is in your way and it's you, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that to me was the metaphor. And, you know, I, I researched CTE and when I say CTE, I don't mean, um, you know, football injuries. I mean, toxic yep. encephalopathy, right? Which yeah. is um, inhalants and things like this. And, and so we never specify in the show what happened, you know, like whether it was all of the soldering he'd been doing, you know, up until then and the, the work he'd been doing on computers in, in close places, but most likely it's something that can happen at a young age. And if he's in the, his father's car mechanic shop, yep. you know, all day, every day, you know, screwing around in there um, with no open windows, something like this can happen. And it, it actually is more common than it, than it uh, um, uh, is known to be, I guess, or, or people realize. Um, and it's also frustratingly ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And we wanted that for Gordon too. And I think that kind of uncertainty, that's life. Saddle yeah. him with, you know yeah. what I mean? Which is just, he constantly, you know, at the beginning we meet him, he's a character who thinks he should be one thing and is not, and he's pissed off. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, you know, I think a lot of us can identify with that. And, and I think this comes in and it's not, 
cancer. It's not a diagnosis that's clarifying. It's a diagnosis that's further enervating in his life. You know, he's like, I don't even know what this, what is it? Is it brain damage? Like, I mean, he's really trying to clarify what it is and will it get worse? Will it not? Like, how do we tell? And, and, um, you know, he does, I think it did do ultimately like, uh, a good job of lancing his ego and, and getting him to a place where in season four, um, he was okay with what he had. Yeah, I was really excited to see the episode where he burned the books because, you know, when you first are faced with something, you think, you know, knowledge and too many episodes of ER, like, or house or whatever, they'll fix it, they'll figure it out, it's all going to be fine. And so he was, you know, just, and that's his field. Like, if there's a problem, I will be able to uh, reverse engineer or figure it out. And sometimes, especially with medical things, that is not the way it goes. And so I think that worked really well for Gordon. It's more like life. Like, you know, you have to make peace with the ambiguity, which is something all of these characters very ambiguous. And so I thought with Gordon, it was just extremely effective, no less heartbreaking, but yeah. 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 I, I agree. I, I, I really liked the way it played out and it was, it was, we wanted to give Gordon a problem he couldn't solve. We wanted to give him a machine he couldn't fix. Right. Yeah. It's the idea for him. And, and then we also, and this was Rogers was really championing this, you know, in the season was we never wanted to tell the story of a slow decline. Oh we no. Want to do that. We wanted instead to do the opposite. We wanted to have a person who had, was doing fine for all intents and purposes mm-hmm. um, until they're not. Yep. Right? And I think that that's a story that we had not seen as much. And then uh, I'm glad we did it that way for sure. For yeah. sure. Well, regarding season four, did you know when it was going to end as a series, which is at the end of season four, or how did that affect your storytelling overall? I think it ends wonderfully and naturally for all of its characters as once again, you set them on entirely new paths. I think that, you know, every season, Chris and I would go, um, to, uh, before it started, we would go to Joshua tree and we would get, we would rent a little house in Joshua tree and we would stay there for two days and we would talk about our process as the two of us. Cause it kind of, it has to work as well as a marriage. Um, cause if the two of us aren't working well as partners, the show's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would talk about our process and then we would just bring all the ideas we had for what the season could be. And from those times in Joshua Tree, we would come back with a document that was kind of the document to beat. It was a document to beat up, pull apart, throw out, whatever it is, but it had to be better. That was yeah. kind of our rule with the writers, right? And and so with Gordon, it was, you know, we knew we wanted to, to pay out this medical story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it was an idea going into season four, like this may be, we, you know, we may say goodbye to Gordon this season, right? Like it was, mm-hmm. that was an idea, you know, the... Um, but it was something that we talked about this with um, we talked about this with Bosworth too. It was, it was, we wanted to kind of give you the head fake of that story, right? That Bosworth yeah, is Yeah, you really did. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like Bosworth has a heart attack and you're like, Oh, oh my God. And, 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 but then, you know, he, he finishes out the story. Like just, he's been told he's going to live well into the 21st century. And, I like, know. I love that so much. Yeah. yeah. And so like, you come with these big character ideas and you build them, you know, you build it around them. I think one that was more up in the air as we were writing the season was somebody like Ryan Ray from season three, where we knew that it was a troubled person and we knew that he was going to be mercurial and he was so going to be a heartbreaking. Doctor, yeah. Right? But we didn't know that, that weeks would go by. We'd be like, okay, we're going to do this. And then weeks would go by. We're like, ah, oh, let's do something different. And then it, 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 we, we just trusted 
the room to come to the conclusion, which mm-hmm. we, you know, we eventually did. And that was the direction. Yeah. Um, so sometimes those things are decided um, later in the game, but, but often with the big character stuff, you know, like Tom, you know, Tom and Cameron are going to be married now, you know, or like whatever it is, or Gordon and Donna are not going to stay together. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that came out of um, so many of these relationships, especially romantic ones or, or married ones, can be binary, you know, where you're like, they're yeah. together, they're not together, they're together, they're not together. And it's like, who cares? Yeah. We, we, we did what we did with Donna and Gordon's relationships so that we could do something completely new. Yep. Right. It was, it was, it, we didn't want to do on again, off again. We wanted no. to, we wanted to really evolve it and say, well, what does it look like a few years after, you know, a split or whatever it is, right? Like that, yep. that to me is, is the, it took it in a new direction and open doors like that, mm-hmm. that, that was what we were always trying to find. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to ask about the music because while the show was on, um, I was always hitting up those Halt and Catch Fire playlists on Spotify. So did you write scenes with specific songs in mind? Were there ones you wanted to get, but were just too prohibitively expensive and how important was it for you guys to not have your show screen period gimmick by opting for ones that we'd heard a million times that would have been like two on the nose? Yeah, it was extremely important for Chris and I. I think Chris yeah. is definitely, you know, a connoisseur of music. His wife works in the music industry. Um, you know, I'm very specific about period music and things like this. Yeah. We 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 would say i think we even said in the bake-off or in the uh, maybe even that first meeting with amc that we wanted this to be the real 80s not the i love the 80s 80s right like yep. it was we wanted it to be that it was and so if it's 83 and it's in the middle of the country well then there's gonna be a large parts of the sets that feel like the late 70s you know Bob's exactly. clothes, i think in the, a lot of his suits are from the late 70s um mm-hmm. in season one um, just because, and, and Joe is different, right? Joe is more of a trendsetter. So he's coming from somewhere else. Um, and then, you know, for music supervision, we brought in, um, Thomas Golubich and his company, Super Music Vision, and they, they did Breaking Bad and he's done a lot of stuff at this point. And Thomas, Thomas is amazing because, uh, Thomas, I think, I hope he's okay with me saying this. I'm sure it's fine, but like he has tinnitus now because he was that kid, with the headphones oh, listen, that were on yeah. at the time. Right. Like mm-hmm. he's that's where he that's he just lives in music. And he he has, I don't know, I don't know if he still lives there. He used to live up the walkway from Chris, which is funny, but um he has this amazing house in Silver Lake and he has just a tape and CD vault. Like just it looks oh, like the library on Instagram, but it's records and tapes and CDs. I mean, can he we just all go there? I mean, everything. I it's so it's so cool, and he'll take you in there and show you all this stuff. And he'll he's got a great team that will just call through things and find. It's just it's that track that works, and mm-hmm. the track you can also afford, right? Like he he'll present yeah. you with options where you're like, wow. I mean, so then you end up with a pilot where we've got you know the Boomtown Rats, and we've got you know uh, some of these more like B side tracks and things like this, you know, and. I think Thomas was intimidating with his music knowledge at the beginning. So I, I, as many opinions as I had, Thomas would be like, listen to these. And you'd listen to him and go, Oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? Or like, man, that's an amazing, I never even realized. And, and he put together a CD for us that was just kind of a listening album for um, when we were shooting the pilot. And uh, 
Chris I and I actually imagine. can't even listen to that album anymore because it brings us back to shooting the pilot in Atlanta. But it's like none of those tracks are in the show, but they remind me of the show. You know, it's like yeah. Robert Palmer, but it's like Robert Palmer's Johnny and Mary from like the early 80s. You know what I mean? Oh, like cool. the soft thin stuff and, um, you know, slippery people and like kind of like B-side Rolling Stones and, and stuff like that. Um, as the show went on, I think Chris and I would get more confident and put tracks in the script. Mm-hmm. I think more than anyone else, we would do that. Um, okay. I will say, I will give Zach Whedon credit for choosing um, So Far Away, the the Dire Straits song in episode eight of season four. He wrote oh, that in. Yeah. Um, and we were lucky enough to get that track. Um, but, you know, then sometimes you write songs in and you can't get them. Um, you know, Chris wrote in so that in, in season three, in the episode I directed, they danced to the Pixies' uh, Valoria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris wrote in um, an early uh, Nirvana song um, off their first album. And we wanted to bring in Nirvana and show the changing of the times. And we wanted to like mm-hmm. put that in there and be like, Oh my God, is that Nirvana? Right. It was, it was like a moment like that and we couldn't get it. You know, it's still like moments where like I'm watching succession. I'm like, Oh, they got Nirvana. Cool. You know, like, we, we <laughs> yeah. couldn't get it, you know, um, the Valoria, come on, great scene. No, the but Thomas yeah. goes, what about this? You know, and you yeah. find something and go, this is perfect. And like people, yeah. so many people like that, that the song gets re- re-energized um, in a cool way, you know, and, and that, you know, Thomas brought us Salisbury Hill for the last song in the show. Yeah. And I had written in to the, the series finale. I had written Phil Collins, take me home. Oh. And um, I was just like trying to speak to the beginning of the show, right? Like bring it full circle with Joe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the quotes came back. Like Sometimes the quotes come back and you're like, what? You know what I mean? It's like a hundred th- something thousand dollars. You know, it was like, huh? yeah. like, and you're like, no, you know, yeah. but then you go and you can go get you know, it's not against all odds. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're like, what? Why? Okay. Um, the funniest, I think the, the funniest spend of music money we had was when, um, Scoot sings, uh, we're coming to America to make a joke about America (laughs) online. Yeah. Um, and when, when an actor sings the song, you have to pay for it. And if you play the track and they sing, you have to pay like twice. Um, called like vocals on, I forgot. I, I it's like vocals on pictures or whatever, but we had to pay when Scoots sang the song and we were like, <laughs> well, what's the quote going to be? You know, and everyone came back and we're like, we're probably gonna have to cut this. Cause like, you know, it's, it's not important. It's, it's like a stupid joke that Gordon makes mm-hmm. and like the song might be expensive. And like Neil Diamond came back and it was like, it was like 40 grand or like 50 grand or something. And I think I was just in a bad mood that day and we had the money to spend on the episode. And I was like, fine. <laughs> I was like, I was like, do it. I was like, throw, Whatever, throw Neil, Neil Diamond, Diamond his money so yeah. that we can make fun of his song. I don't care. It'll be the easiest <laughs> 50 he ever made. It was just like showrunner power. Where I was like, I don't fine. Like just sing it. Yeah. Like I they sing the whole thing now. We it's mad money. Yeah. Yeah. Like who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Do we get him yeah, for couch really stuff as long as we're throwing him 40 or 50? Come on. No. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then on the score side, we had Paul Hustlinger who, you know, he was in Tangerine Dream and like. Oh my God. I love the theme music. We should probably end there and ask you about that theme music. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, the, the theme music, the theme is from a band called Trent Mahler. Uh, okay. which I believe in Scandinavian. 
Um, and that's something that Thomas brought to us. But Paul came in and he did the suite of score. Oh. And the story yeah, I always I like tell about music. Paul is in this in the episode in it's the episode I directed in season four when they're cleaning up Gordon's house. And it's all just very sparse piano. Mm-hmm. And we were on the sound mixing stage and you can you can probably listen to it. I think I think there is a volume of the score you can get, but from what has this track, but it's very sparse. And in the sound mixing stage, I could hear the echoes and the move of the wood and the strings and the creak of the instrument. And I was like, man, Paul, I was like, where did you get this piano? Like the fact that you did that. And Paul was like, no, it's not an actual instrument. I went to this famous, very old hundred something year old piano in Europe. And I mic'd every part of it the strings, the keys, oh my God. the legs, the everything. And we played on it for hours. And then I, I digitized it and I built it into a virtual instrument. So it sounds like that piano when you play it. <laughs> that was, is amazing. I was, my mind was even blown. I was like, like that? oh my God. He's like, you wouldn't be actually be able to play this piece on that piano. It wouldn't sound like this, but I wanted the I wanted the ambient noise that the analog instrument made in the music. And I was like, Oh my God. And the guys. That's a genius, genius right there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I want to thank you so much. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you want to be sure to shout out for the fans? Boy, no, I mean, I feel like we covered it. You know, people yeah. can always ask me weird stuff. People always want to know like, what was Donna's idea at the end? And it's like, that's not <laughs> the point of the show. That's Yeah. <laughs> come on. <laughs> It's not the point. No. Um, but yeah. No, it's I not mean, Tony I, I, Soprano living or dying. That's not the point. Come on. Yes. No, they were killed actually in the diner. They were. Killed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what happened to Donna and uh, Cameron. Yeah. We just idea. solved that. Yeah. 57 Magnum next year. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I, think we, uh, I think that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm around. People can always bug me and they do, which is fine. It makes me happy. It's, it's like Chris is in my foot, like high school football days at this point. It's. Oh. It was a rarefied experience making that show. And I think at the farther we get away from it, the more we realize it was lightning in a bottle. And um, such a beautiful uh, series. Yeah. 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 Well, we're all so grateful to you for, you know, spending your afternoon talking about it. And I learned so much. And it was just such a pleasure. I want to oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. 
This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.